It's Tuesday, February 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The process of getting a coronavirus vaccine appointment can seem like trying to get a PS5 with all available appointments gone before you know it. Part of the problem is poorly designed sites and also too many vaccine sites from state, local, and hospitals all having their own web portals. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at the Washington Post, joined us for tips on how to master the vaccine appointment websites. Next, as cases were soaring last year, the government bought millions of dollars of rapid COVID tests and distributed them to states. Now, we're finding out that millions of these tests have gone unused. One area of concern is that many of these tests are also reaching their six-month expiration dates. States have cited accuracy concerns and also other challenges such as training and demand for not using them. Sarah Krauss, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how millions of rapid tests have remained unused. Finally, the rate of infection in the U.S. is starting to trend in the right direction. While we are seeing these better numbers, experts are divided on why and chalk it up to four possibilities. Good behavior in mask wearing, improved vaccine distribution, changing seasonality, and more cases going undetected because of less testing. Reese Thiebaud, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for why coronavirus cases are dropping. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. He had a friend who'd gotten it, so he knew it was possible, and he was calling places, going to pharmacies. They were telling him to come back. They were telling him to call again, go to the website, and then they were also inundated with a bunch of people doing those things. Joining us now is Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. You bet. Wanted to talk about these vaccine appointment websites. I know a lot of people are out there trying to get vaccine appointments for themselves. Maybe you might be helping a parent or a grandparent. So that adds another layer of difficulty. But, you know, while a lot of people have had success and are getting their vaccines, a lot of people haven't had that success and they're getting really frustrated with these sites. Jeff, mm. you wrote a guide, best tips and practices on how to get that appointment. So I suggest everybody go out and read that. There's a lot of tips in there. But Jeff, start us off and tell us why are these vaccine appointment websites so poorly designed right now? I think where things went wrong is that this is a case study in how more technology does not always make things run better. So the federal government is in charge of buying the vaccine and giving it to the state. So the states made their own websites and systems for people to book appointments. Then within states, counties made their own systems for people to, uh, and websites for people to book uh, appointments. Then local hospitals and clinics made their own systems with the supply they were getting. Then on top of that, now we have pharmacies this week in particular opening up with a new direct supply from the feds, the CVS, Walgreens, with their own systems and apps. Takeaway from this is like there are so many websites right. that you have to check. There's no centralization going on here. So if you want to get these really precious high-demand appointment slots, in many cases, you have to basically make it your full-time job to check websites all day long and press reload on them and try to hunt out scraps of information that might give you a little bit of an advantage to book that appointment before somebody else does. It actually has a lot in common with snagging Beyonce tickets. You know, the same skills that are involved yeah. in being kind of an extreme online shopper are involved here, except we're asking senior citizens to do this. It's going to most most likely take multiple attempts to get through on this. So don't be discouraged and you got to stick with it. But one of the things you mentioned is 
have all of your information ready to be easily copy pasted. Because in a lot of these websites, every single time you have to re-enter that information. So there's all this information that we discovered by experimenting with these websites that they were going to be asked to enter. In some cases, every time just to check if there were appointments available. I'm talking about you know ID stuff, your uh, health insurance code and cards and all that kind of stuff. One of the things that would have made that go a lot better for my parents, we discovered later on, is if they just typed it all into a word processing document, because you're going to have to enter this stuff in so many times. And look, a lot of seniors are a little bit slower at typing, and it's not their fault. You know, as you get older, it's harder to you know, type really fast. So just put it in one place so you have it. You can copy and paste it in. One of the other things you mentioned is don't be afraid of using the phone. Everybody's you know, sending people to the websites, but there are also people that can help you out by phone. California has a line you can call. Massachusetts has a line just for seniors to help them. Definitely, you're, you're going to see the pharmacies and other people trying to direct people through the internet because it's more efficient for them to have you, you know, reloading their website all day to try to figure out when new stuff comes online. But look, if you're a senior and you're not comfortable with that, that's okay. Find this phone number. You might have to stay you know, on hold for a while or whatever it is, but it is available to you. And related to that, like, look, again, if you're a senior that just doesn't have the equipment or the expertise to do this, like look for help. There are actually a lot of groups around the country that are trying to sort of be vaccine angels and, and, and connect people with resources. You know, if you don't know where to find one, just call your local public library. One of the lines that I love in your article, the people having the most success getting appointments are the ones with the best information. So one of the key tips mm-hmm. would be to sign up for alerts, you know, so you know when the doses are coming. You know that on this day, they're going to have doses. Let's get really busy on trying to sign up. There's you know, various kinds of alerts available from all the sorts of different authorities who have the vaccine. In some cases, the alerts are actually sort of disappointing, like in California, pretty much if you sign up for the alerts. All that you'll get is a text message when your particular demographic is able to get a shot. But other places, they're getting more specific in the alerts. Or beyond that, this is all about information. So hunt out these scraps of information you can about when a new vaccine comes online. Like, for example, in Florida, you get the vaccine through Publix, the uh, supermarket that has a pharmacy in it. People learned that Publix puts the new appointments online at 7 a.m. every morning. So that meant that like at 6.55 in Florida, people are there at the public website, <laughs> pressing reload, ready to go to get it. Ultimately, that's how my parents got their shot. My mom was just pressing reload on this site because she heard a tip on the local TV news that they were going to be adding some new slots that day. Last question I have, I guess it's a twofold question. How long did it take you to get your parents' appointment? And just like the last overall big tip, like what is going to push people through on these sites the most? It took us probably about two weeks once it was really available to them in Massachusetts. Um, And I learned a lot from that process and I share the sort of learnings from that in in my piece. Let me give you a two-part answer to to your deceptively (laughs) simple question. The thing that matters the most is being persistent. But the thing we didn't talk about, but I just wanted to like flag that people really need to be careful about is fraud. There are a lot of sketchy people out there and they're taking advantage of the lack of information in this moment and the fear about it to try to take advantage of seniors. Folks should definitely be very careful. Look at the source of the information. Start your journey of figuring this out on authoritative websites, you know, either on government websites, or if you don't know what those are, go to the Washington Post. We've got links to all of them. ARP has links to all of them. And if somebody you know, sends you an email or text messages you about an appointment, that could be legit. 
but it also might not be. So get on the phone and call whoever said that they were reaching out to you and make sure it's really them. Because the last thing you want to do is end up, you know, having your identity stolen or someone taking the money or whatever. Like, it's sad, but, but it is a thing that folks need to be aware of. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. If it's positive, it usually pops pretty quickly, so you'll be able to see it. It really is akin almost to like, I mean, lighting the thing like almost like a pregnancy test in some respects. Joining us now is Sarah Krause, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. As cases were soaring at the end of last year, the Trump administration sent out tens of millions of rapid response COVID tests out to uh, out to states. And now we're seeing that a lot of these tests haven't been used. You know, I think it was about 32 million have not been used, totaling maybe about $160 million. You know, we want to use all the resources we can, obviously, but this kind of seems to have gone very underused. And there's a few different reasons, accuracy concerns, things like that. But Sarah, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing with these unused rapid response tests. So as you say, the federal government placed a large order of rapid antigen tests towards the end of last year and distributed them through January of this year. And the intent of those tests was to be able to quickly diagnose infected individuals and sort of start the contact tracing process early and help them be able to isolate. And the idea behind this purchase was, you know, they could be used in schools or jails or nursing homes in settings where there can be outbreaks and where there are people gathering by virtue of the type of establishment that it is. And what we found when we checked in with all 50 states was, you know, of the states that responded, there were a sizable number of tests that had gone unused for a variety of different reasons. Some of that was concerns over accuracy that these are tests that aren't quite as accurate as lab-based tests. You know, at the same time, these are tests that are good at picking up infectious individuals, so those most likely to spread it. So there was sort of a a debate as to whether these were the right tools to use relative to lab-based tests, you know, as well as other sort of regulatory type hurdles, like getting regulatory waivers to be able to use them in settings like schools or jails, places where you wouldn't necessarily be running, you know, a diagnostic test in the past, as well as just how to report the results. Some of them may be approaching a six-month expiration date. So if they don't get used, they might be useless, right? How how does that part of it work? Some of the earliest tests that were sent out are coming up on their six-month expiration date. Now, there's efforts to sort of extend that and see, you know, if that shelf life can go beyond that six-month period because, you know, we don't want these to be wasted. But yes, it is the case that some of the earliest tests sent out are coming up against that initial expiration date. Most of these tests are the tests developed by Abbott Labs. I think they're called Binax Now. And they cost about $5 each. So tell us about the purchase that we made on these. So these were some of the earliest rapid tests. And when I say rapid, I mean you get your results in about 15 minutes. Um, And these tests, the Binax Now test that the federal government purchased, they cost about $5. They're roughly the size of a credit card. So you don't need a lot of equipment or machinery to process a cartridge or a test. The sort of appeal of them was that they were these sort of easy to distribute, easy to use type tests. You know, they had to be administered by medical professionals, you know, but they were sort of straightforward and a way to get really quick answers. And even still, it's the largest federal government bulk purchase of COVID-19 tests to date. So HHS spent about $760 million to buy 150 million tests. And then they gave them out to the states and gave pretty wide latitude with how states wanted to use them. And that's part of what we discovered in our reporting became a challenge is 
states had different ideas of how valuable these tests were and were not or how appropriate they were to use in different settings. And at the same time, they were battling sort of high case counts. And so there was a concern about like in some places branching beyond the known quantity that is the lab-based test to create workflows around using these rapid tests. And part of that comes into, you know, how do you report the results of this? Because labs have sort of built in infrastructure to do that. With these rapid tests, states had to create sort of a reporting system to notify public health authorities of what they detected. As you mentioned, some of these other hurdles, you know, let's say for schools, you know, it took a lot of training to get these parts set up. So it was just difficult to roll these out everywhere. Public health experts say they are best used regularly on the same population, you know, so like a one-off test of someone who doesn't have symptoms likely is not the best application of this type of test. Um, But the pitch at the time or the idea at the time was use these for broad, regular screening because we're just trying to weed out the people that are most likely to infect others. So that was the rationale behind this. But the reality of putting these tests to work and putting them to work quickly at a time when public health authorities are strained and dealing with record case counts and preparing for vaccines, there ended up being a lot more sort of logistical hurdles and sort of other fires to deal with along the way that got in the way of some of this rollout. You mentioned it a a bit ago, you know, the accuracy of these tests was a concern, but they do well in detecting people that do have uh, high viral lows and are probably very contagious. I think at that point, Abbott Labs said their tests are about 95% accurate or so, but it was a lot more difficult when it comes to people that were asymptomatic. These tests are, you know, some epidemiologists describe them as contagiousness tests, you know, so there is value in using them to quickly detect people who are infected and then quickly begin the contact tracing process. And, you know, as I I talked to a current HHS official who oversees the U.S. testing efforts now, and they are investing in other types of testing and other ways to scale up the U.S.'s testing infrastructure. But his point is, you know, public health is about trying to balance imperfect solutions so that we can control the pandemic. So is this the most accurate test in the world? No. Does it give you the information that you need to quickly address the most problematic cases? Yes. You know, so there's this push-pull And I think that's what you see playing out in the states across the country that we're grappling with how best to use these and where to use them. Sarah Krause, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So far this year, the number of weekly reported cases has fallen by almost half from more than 5 million cases in the week of January 4 to 2.6 million cases in the week starting February 8. Joining us now is Reese Thibault, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Reese. Thanks for having me, Oscar. We've been experiencing some kind of good news, bad news with regards to coronavirus. The numbers are trending better for us right now, which is great. Obviously, we have this kind of concern with these new variants that we're seeing pop up all over the place. But as far as we see with rate of infections, they're dropping. And I think it's the lowest numbers we've seen since November. Now, you know, everybody wants that secret sauce. So we know what we're doing right. So we can keep doing those things. But experts are a little mixed as to why they think this is happening. They think they have like four main reasons why it could be happening, but no one's exactly sure. So Reese, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing. How are the numbers And what do we think is causing them to go down right now? Experts are floating a number of possible explanations. So the four I get into in my story are good behavior. You know, people 
obeying uh, social distancing guidelines, right. wearing masks, that kind of thing, and then getting vaccines. We're seeing a quickening pace of vaccinations. And then the possibility that the data is actually lying to us, that it might be obscuring something and that um, maybe cases aren't dropping quite as much as we're seeing in the numbers. And then there's this issue of seasonality. Yeah. So the virus is a respiratory virus, and we know that respiratory viruses tend to slow their spread in warmer climates. Vaccine distribution, let's get into that one a little bit. You know, we need about 70 to 90% of people to getting vaccines for it to be super effective, they say. I think we're about 12% at last count. So what are we seeing there? The folks that are chucking these falling numbers up to vaccines, they're pointing to the rising rates of vaccination. So last week we saw about an average of 1.6 million vaccinations administered per day. That's a pretty impressive number, especially considering President Biden set the benchmark at 1.5 million. And there were a lot of people who said after he noted that, that that might be a little lofty. But Last week, we met and exceeded that. So that's a good sign. But a lot of leading epidemiologists have said it's just too soon for vaccines to be having a major impact. You know, like you said, if there were some 40 million people who have received at least their first dose, that's about 12% of the U.S. population. So vaccinations are probably helping a bit, but I think it's too early to attribute this big dent all to vaccines. Seasonality. That's an interesting one, you know, with respiratory diseases, obviously in the cold months and winter and all that, these things usually seem to climb up. I guess we're going to be coming out of flu season also pretty soon. So they're saying that this could be very helpful to us where we'll see a drop in this from now until at least August or so. With other respiratory viruses, we've seen that fall off when the weather starts to improve. And kind of looking ahead in the calendar, that's a positive point here. As for right now, I don't know. In D.C., it's not very warm. It still feels very much like the winter. We're seeing freezing temperatures everywhere right now. So right. that's much more of, um, you know, maybe in the weeks to come, we'll be having a, a positive impact. But as for impacting the numbers right now at this moment or in the weeks prior, that's a little harder sell, I think. We're obviously very focused on vaccine distribution. And what we might be seeing is kind of a decrease in testing maybe even a reduced demand for testing uh, mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, more people kind of have gotten it uh, and so-and-so. So that's an interesting one. Help us walk through that one. You remember in the thick of the winter surge, there was just this explosion in cases and there was a similar explosion in people getting tested. And coming out of that winter surge, you know, there was a backlog of tests that didn't get processed over the holidays. And as they were processed, we saw in the numbers, there was another spike. And folks have said that maybe a bit of an artificial spike to sort of processing the backlogs. But what it means is when we've seen in weeks following the numbers go down, they're coming down from an even higher peak. But it is still important to note that testing actually has fallen off. It's fallen off steadily over the last few weeks from, I think, in early January, there were about 2 million tests being processed per day. And now I think we're about 1.5, 1.6 million per day. That is pointing to the fact that, you know, maybe fewer people are getting tested and fewer cases are being captured. Right. But you also have to look at hospitalizations, which are going down as well. So, you know, that's a reason to be hopeful that this only plays a minor role, yeah. if one at all. Reese Tebow, reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Oscar.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.